whether you have used a kettlebell, have not used a kettlebell, don't even know what a kettlebell is, you're going to this episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, usually starting feet first, those things at the end of your legs, because they're responsible for stuff like balance, agility, mobility, stuff like that. On the podcast, we also break down the propaganda, the mythology, and often the outright lies you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or jump or play or do yoga or crossfit or dance, whatever it is you like to do, and to do those things enjoyably and effectively and efficiently. And wait, did I say enjoyably? I'm getting a little old and I forget. That's a lie. I don't forget. It was a trick question. Of course I said enjoyably, because if you're not having fun, you're not going to keep doing whatever it is. So find something you enjoy doing. I am Stephen Sashin, co-founder, co-CEO of ZeroShoes.com. And we call this the Movement Movement Podcast because we, that includes you, more about that in a second, are creating a movement about natural movement, letting your body do what it's made to do. And the part where you get involved is really easy to spread the word. Give us a great review. Give us a thumbs up. Share, hit the bell icon on YouTube to find out about new episodes. In fact, you can go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's nothing you need to do to join. There's no secret handshake. There's no dance we do every morning, at least not one that I tell people about. It's just that's where you can find all the previous episodes, all the ways you can find us on social media and all the places you can spread the word. So in short, if you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. All right, let's get started and have some fun. Brett, tell people who the hell you are and what you're doing here. Awesome. Stephen, first off, just fantastic to have the opportunity to be on the podcast and to speak to you and your audience and looking forward to today's conversation. The long story made short of how I got here is a certified athletic trainer. I've been involved in the fitness industry for over 25 years. So certified athletic trainer, CSCS, the end, uh, made the decision in February of 02 to go get certified in kettlebell training with Pavel and started teaching with him a year later in April of 03. And then got hooked back up with Gray Cook, who I had worked with in my training room at his clinics from 95 to 97, and uh, started teaching and working with FMS and, and functional movement systems in 2006. And so over 22 years now of being kettlebell certified and 21 years of teaching it uh, all across the globe. Let's back up because 2002, that was really, did I say really enough times early in the wonderful world of kettlebells? So how did you even hear about this? And then how'd you get connected with Pavel Satsaline, who's the guy who everyone basically associates with bringing kettlebells from Russia to America? Like back up to do the Wayback Machine and talk about that. Awesome. I was running a hospital fitness center at the time. So we were doing post rehab before post rehab was a thing. And uh, we were transitioning a bunch of people from physical therapy to uh, our wellness program and, and doing training with them. I just, and... I just like how you put air quotes around both post rehab and wellness. I think that... <laughs> <laughs> I am an air quotes guy. You'll be seeing that pretty frequently. Yeah, yeah um, I, tend, I tend to err in that direction as well. I love it. Nobody puts baby in a corner because <laughs> if I air quoted it, you can't hold me to it. One of my former employees, somebody that I've worked with me for a little while, comes back and says, hey, you should really check out this Pavel guy. And I said, okay. So I got his Power to the People book. And Power to the People was revolutionary in its time because it was the anti-bodybuilding message. It was, you only need two lifts. You need to prioritize strength, not muscle size. Um, minimalist routine, you know, things that have been at the heart of Pavel's teachings for from his inception, from his beginning as a teacher. And so at that point, the kind of marketing machine kicks in and I start getting the newsletters and this is the days of mailed, getting actual mail and printed materials. And so started hearing about kettlebell, bought the book, Russian Kettlebell Challenge, read it, 
said, I can do all that with a dumbbell and threw it in a drawer and ignored it for a little while. And then in the back of my brain, it's just picking at the back of my brain. So I get it back out. I'm like, okay. So I hook up a 50 pound dumbbell and I'm going to try one of the snatch workouts that's in the back of the book. And I like to joke that when EMS revived me, and that's a joke, there was, there were no emergency services activated, but by the time I was done with the workout, I said, you know, I should go get trained in this. And I missed the opportunity to be a part of the first ever certification in October of 01, but I did go to the second certification in February of 02. And we were throwing water balloons at each other in freezing temp, sub freezing temperatures at nine o'clock at night. And it was a really different experience than what we've uh, cultivated uh, to this point. But yeah, that was the, that's the way back machine story for how I got uh, exposed. So first of all, water balloons in sub-freezing temperatures is the kind of thing that you expect with the Russians. My, my gymnastics coach, when he was at the Worlds, was hanging out with a bunch of, and was traveling with a bunch of Russian gymnasts. And he said, to say they have a different sense of humor is an understatement. Here is their favorite joke. Two bricks are sitting on the top of a roof. One brick falls off and the other brick yells, I hope you land on someone's head. And then <laughs> burst into hysterics. And it's a classic <laughs> Russian joke from that era, at least. So just for the fun of it, if you had to give yourself a number for what number are you for people who were certified back then, if you were in the second round, where would you put yourself? In the first 30. So I think there were seven or eight people at the first cert in October of 01. And I think there were 22 people at my certification in February of, of uh, 02. Now, so, how many of those people are still there swinging bells? I'm pretty sure I'm the only one. That's very interesting. Well, so, okay, so let's back up a giant step for people who are completely oblivious to what a kettlebell is and why, in fact, it is different than a dumbbell. Jump into that, if you would. 100%. It, it's an interesting, it's a cannonball with a handle on it, right? You've got this mass of weight and then you've got this handle on top. And so it looks very brutish and simplistic. But what you get in that thick handle and offset center of mass is a weight that becomes very alive in your hands. As you are swinging it, there is this displaced center of mass that you need to deal with, which increases and gives us the ability to swing it between our legs creating a very unique overspeed eccentric position. Uh, you can only swing a barbell between your legs once, and then you'll decide, probably not going to do that again. I'm not sure you can even do it once. I think uh, <laughs> you get halfway and then you're in the hospital. Yeah, you'll stop. Yeah. It's self-correcting. So <laughs> the, the thick handle offset center of mass, the loaded eccentric position, the way that when you rack it in the clean or get up or for the press, that offset center of mass literally oh. up, up to a certain point guides your shoulder into better positions. Then once you reach a certain point and the displacement is great enough, it's a challenge to be overcome that actually provides a lot of additional strengthening. For the sake of doing this for normal human beings, let's, let's define two things. Let's define what the overloaded eccentric is. And let's also talk about what the rack position is, uh, which is for people who have used kettlebells, we're going to then jump into why many people stop using kettlebells is because they don't understand how the rack position works and they end up smashing the crap out of their forearm until the, and they think that the solution is to just build up forearm calluses or something. So <laughs> let's do the eccentric, the, the overloaded eccentric, and then let's talk about positioning and how people may have that upside down in their brains. Absolutely. So the eccentric position of a deadlift or the athletic hinge that we use in the swing is uh, that position where you have 
sat back into the hips and you're absorbing the load uh, of the kettlebell. So wait, and, I'm going to, I'm going to, wait, I'm going to do this a little differently just to paint yep. a picture. So imagine for the fun of it, that the motion that we're talking about is, and I'm, uh, this is not quite accurate for a number of reasons, but let's refer to it as like, oh, actually it's not too bad. I was going to say getting up off a chair, getting back into a chair, but it's actually better to say toilet because when we're going to go sit on a toilet, we really stick our butt back further than we do if we're sitting on a chair. And when we get up, we're, for lack of a better term, thrusting our hips forward to get up off the toilet. So the eccentric is the sitting back part. And when we have the kettlebell, the kettlebell, when we're standing upright in a kettlebell swing, the kettlebell, your arms are extended, for lack of a better, there's variations, but basically straight out in front of you, so perpendicular to your body, parallel to the ground. And so what's happening is as you're sitting back with your arms straight, you're, the, bell, the kettlebell is going to be swinging between your legs. So you'd be crushing your toilet and then having to go to Home Depot to get a new toilet. Because yeah. all right, So that's the motion that we're talking about. Yeah, and we could picture a broad jump or a vertical leap, to, you know, when you sit yes. back and hinge into that to load the hips, that's that that's, eccentric yeah, but position. That, but that picture doesn't involve a toilet, so it's not as good. <laughs> it's, it, is, it, it lacks a certain degree of clarity, without a doubt. When you sit into that eccentric position and what's happening with the swing in particular is on the way up, we've produced this force. We've created this uh, great hip extension. We've created a ballistic action with the kettlebell. So we bring it from this eccentric position into that concentric position, it's going to swing up in front of us. All the energy the kettlebell is ever going to get is going to come from our hips coming up into that extended position. Then we got to let gravity do its thing or assist gravity slightly by reconnecting the arms to the body and then sitting back into that uh, hinge position. The amount of load we're able to achieve in bringing that bell into that eccentric position and then quickly turning it around into another swing is really unique. And I've been on a force plate. I know that I produce between three to three and a half times body weight, eccentric load, doing a two-handed swing with a 24 kilo bell. So I can produce a lot of force. I can absorb and redirect a lot of force within that kettlebell swing. And so that overspeed eccentric, and if you think about it, force absorption and redirection what sport did we not just talk about? Right. It, it is everything that we do, whether it's walking, running, jumping, playing. There's another interesting thing about that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately, which is how people misunderstand even basic weightlifting or basic strength programming with one, one essential idea. And it has to do with the force curve. It's like where you should be applying force and where things should be getting easier. And for the sake of using an example of the bicep curl, or let's use, I'll use the bicep curl. Many things have been done because we know that that last little bit of doing the bicep curl can get hard. And people think, oh, what we need to do is something where we're accentuating the hardness at the end. But the right force curve is that it's actually hard at the beginning and gets easier at the end because that's the way your muscle works. So ironically, there's this whole thing about using bands and bands get harder and harder as you stretch them. And people go, oh, that feels really good. But it's the exact opposite of what you typically need. And with kettlebells, you're getting that correct force curve. So when you've sat back in that in the swing, the kettlebell is between your legs a little behind you, and you're about to start pushing your hips forward to send the kettlebell flying, that's where it's the hardest, and then it gets easier and gets a little weightless at the very end. That's the right force curve for building that kind of strength that just, as you said, is appropriate for pretty much everything we would ever do on our feet. Yeah, no, I, 100%.
And I think okay, that's a good this, night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> tip, be, be sure to tip your server. I think that it really is the secret sauce of kettlebell training in general, because when we take it into the swing, the clean, the snatch, we get into slightly different force vectors there where with the clean and the snatch, we're a little bit more vertical, more like a vertical leap versus the kind of broad jump force of, of maybe the swing to put it into general uh, categories. And that we used to call it the what the heck effect. And so people would start swinging a kettlebell and PR their pull-ups. People oh. would start swinging a kettlebell and PR something that they hadn't been training, whatever that that may be. But I, I really, pardon me, I, I really think it comes into that, that loaded eccentric and overspeed eccentric and just how much force we can start absorbing and redirecting and how that transfers into so many other things that we want to be doing. Yeah, it's not an, an uncommon thing to think about that sprinters are known for having butts and it's all from that hip extension which yeah. is, and just to clarify that hip extension, if you imagine standing up and you lift your right foot off the ground half an inch, and then you just pull it behind, drag, kick your heel behind you, that's hip extension. But when you th think about that from a seated position, if you think about getting up from a seated position or that bottom of a deadlift and thrusting your hips forward more than the idea of standing up and like a squat, that's the way that that shows up there. So Let's then go to the whole thing of this whole problem that people run into when they're starting to get into things like clean or the snatch and they smash the crap out of their elbows or sorry, their forearms and think, oh, this is not for me. Absolutely. So when we, and if we take it down into something like the getup, all right, you're going to roll on your side, you're going to establish your grip on the handle. You're going well, to bring you, it you, over. You, you got to back that one up. For people who've never seen a Turkish getup, and I don't know why it's a okay. Turkish getup, it probably didn't come from Turkey. It probably, uh, yeah, who knows? It's like yeah. Bulgarian split squat. Didn't come from Bulgaria. It, it's just it's a thing. Walk through what that would look like if somebody didn't know what it was because they were from another planet and they were watching a video. If I was laying on the ground and I had a weight, shoe, on your back. shoe uh, on balanced on my fist. So let's say that I was holding onto a dumbbell or I had a kettlebell in the rack position, or I had a yoga block balanced on my fist. And I was going to get up from the ground to standing and back down without dropping the yoga block. That's a get up. So oh, you can cool. visualize coming through the different positions that you would come through, getting to the elbow, getting to the hand, sweeping the leg, getting, getting straight, and then progressing into the standing position and reversing that. Gray Cook called it alignment with integrity under load. So it's like a moving yoga, a loaded yoga-ish sort of thing where we move through these positions to get to standing and then we come back down and we're really concerned with maintaining our alignment because regardless of what load you're holding, what's holding the load is the ground. Right. You are aligning your structure so that the weight centers through you most efficiently to be held by the ground. So there's actually a lot of benefit of get-ups, one of my favorite exercises I do with them every time I train to some degree. Some days it's one or two, some days it's five. It, it just varies. First things first, I think we need to make more Karate Kid references during the rest of this conversation. Second, 100%. And if no one got it, rewind. Secondly, what you just said, I never thought of the get up that way. And I wanna, I'm going to add a little tweak to that image. Imagine you're lying on, on the ground on your back, your arm is pointing up towards the ceiling, and you're holding a glass of water that's full. And you want to get up to standing without dropping a drop which by the way, reminds me of a thing from Art Linkletter. And this is showing how old I am. Kids say the darndest things. 
he had, it was a collection of kids saying funny things. And one of them was my favorite. A kid was asked to describe what, how it rains. And he said, water forms around a piece of dust until it forms a drop. And then it does, which I just love. <laughs> so you're holding a glass of water pointed towards the ceiling. You want to stand up in a way that keeps the, that's most efficient that keeps the glass from, from the water from spilling and then getting back down as well. So once you can imagine that, now just imagine having a anywhere from, I don't know, let's make it 10 to 40 pound weight that not only are you holding in your hand, but it's a little offset. So it's not just holding in your hand. It's a little out of whack. So it's trying to force you to not have that perfect alignment, um, but it's showing you what that alignment is because the better you do, the more weight you can handle because it's not about strength as much as it is about alignment. Yes. Yeah. hundred. I, I love it. I, I love the description. And I, and I think that as we move through something like that, I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn potentially. And okay. because you may have had people on to talk about foot structure and how we're loading the foot and how there's some uniqueness in why? there. Why would you think that I've ever talked to anybody about that? That is, it's a guess. It's just yeah. a, it's just a guess. Yeah. I'll try again, but okay. Keep going. <laughs> but when we come up into the hands, what we see are some unique hand and wrist structures that influence how we hold the bell. And the reason I'm getting into this is because to your point of people not being comfortable with the bell in that rack position, A, the back of our forearm is, not, is someplace we typically don't bear load. So having any weight sitting there initially is like, dude, that's weird. Like it, I feel pressure there and I've never, potentially never felt that before. It, you'll adjust. But when we look at hand and wrist architecture, and I sit here and I snap my hands up. It looks like I'm waving, right? I'm, I have a very ulnar deviated hand and wrist position. And I have a thumb that is very high in my palm. Okay, so, so the reason... Yeah, so, for, so for people who aren't watching, so imagine yeah. just putting your hand up at face level with your palm facing away from you. So your palm's facing the same way your face is. And if you do that kind of naturally, yeah, you're pinky is not pointing straight up. It's pointing at like, I'm using my right hand, it's pointing at two o'clock. And that creates an interesting bit of alignment from the base of my thumb to the base of my pinky that is pretty much horizontal, parallel to the ground that most yes. people have never thought of. And so now there's two other wrist archetypes. So you and I, you're not as ulnar deviated as I am, but you appear to be a bit uh, ulnar deviated. My friend Fabio Zonin, who is our one of our Italian instructors, and he has a product with Strong First called Victorious, which is all about the kettlebell military press. So I started using his grip for the military press because I saw it in the video and I'm like, ooh, that sounds cool. I'm going to start doing it. Well, I, I irritated both my shoulders and I started, I was blaming everything else. I'm like, oh, I changed my grip on my pull-ups or maybe I did this or maybe, and then I'm like, you dummy. The only thing you changed was your grip on the kettlebell. And so in looking at my hands, very ulnar deviated, thumb very high in the palm. Fabio is very radial deviated with a thumb that's very low in his palm. Interesting. He goes pinky side of the bell with the bell very deep in his palm. I go thumb side with the bell angled at the direction of my wrist and, and calluses, so to speak. I go deep uh, as I can without putting pressure on my thumb because, again, my thumb is very high in my palm. And then there, there are people who are neutral. They're neither ulnar nor radial, and the thumb position is varied in there. <clears throat> in establishing this, we really started taking a look at how people were gripping because, okay, if we're doing a static move like the getup, 
maybe we can get away with just going neutral for everybody. But once you're pressing and you're actually moving load through this mid-range of the shoulder, how you align that load and how you're moving that force through your structure really matters. And so for me, thumb side, angled grip, I get a really strong push, shoulders are healthy, everybody's happy. For Fabio, it's pinky side, deep, neutral grip, and people that are neutral, middle of the bell, parallel with your calluses, it's a very general recommendation. As I'm getting in position for something like the getup, or I'm thinking about where I want that bell to end up in my clean, uh, we can increase our comfort by understanding our hand and wrist architecture and then appropriately gripping pardon me, gripping the bell either towards thumb, middle, or pinky, depending on hand and wrist. Interesting. So what often happens for people if they're doing the clean, which is basically you're bringing the bell from the ground or from swing to essentially your shoulder. For that, and also for the snatch, where you're bringing it again from either the ground or part of a swing, all the way overhead. What people will sometimes experience often, sometimes, or sometimes often is that the kettlebell will smash into the back of their forearm. And so part of what we're talking about with the grip is one piece of trying to eliminate that. What, if anything, are other things that people need to pay attention to, whether they're doing a clean or a snatch or anything else, so that they're not getting that massive forearm smashy phenomenon? Absolutely. It's easy, easiest way to think about, let's talk about the clean specifically for just a moment. You want that to roll up into the rack position. You do not want to flip the kettlebell up into the rack position. So just that visual of very smoothly rolling that kettlebell up into position. So there is no impact. We want the, the kettlebell to come into the rack position like a butterfly with sore feet. It should be very gentle and land, arrive and the, on the, in the rack position at the same time your arm ends up in the rack position. If your arm ends up in the rack position first and then the kettlebell shows up, bad news because that's going to be a knock and potential bruise. So we want to think of rolling up. And one of the quickest ways we can learn that is two things. Cheek clean. So if I go neutral grip with the handle on the ground and I want my right hand to end up with the bell and my left hand comes over and covers my right and I kick it back and pick it up, I'm going to automatically tame the arc and not let that bell get way away from me. I'm just going to, it's going to naturally guide me into that roll it up to the rack position. Uh, and another thing that we could throw in there is don't clean it to your shoulder, clean it to your hip. Because the biggest problem people have with the clean is they just do too much with it. Mm. We're actually not moving the bell that far. We don't have to, if we swing at a seven out of 10 effort, we're cleaning at a two. It's a oh, massive difference. Yeah. And then the other thing is if if you picture me in that hinge position, but rowing a kettlebell. So I point my thumb back and then as I row it, I point my thumb forward. So a little twisting row there. Wait, back and forward. Give me, I'm trying to explain back and forward. So thumb points behind you, thumb points to your shoulder. Oh, okay. Basically, right? so here. Yeah, you're doing a Brutus ascending Christians of the lions, thumb down <clears throat> when you're have the bell um, in the, come on, I can do it when you're in the hip hinge. And then yeah. as you're coming, it's coming towards your shoulder. You're basically hitchhiking. So thumbs pointing to your shoulder. Yep. 
So in that rack position, I can actually touch my collarbone uh, with my thumb. So that's the kind of positioning we end up in. But if I'm performing that row down in the hinge position, and then during the row, I stand up, you'll bring the bell right into the rack position and uh, probably not over clean it. Yeah, that's a brilliant cue. It's as if you've been doing this for a while. That's cool. Picked up one or two things uh, along well, the way. Did we get, you said there was uh, two things about this. Did we cover both of those or? Uh, did we I... did. The cheat clean and the row, uh, oh, row to clean will, will really help clean up the clean. <laughs> and yeah, kettlebell humor. It's all we've got. Yeah. So, yeah. Don't, don't open with it. As a former professional stand-up comic, I, I know you got to work the room. You just really got to know who your audience is. Um, <laughs> and look, even in a kettlebell conference, if that gets a laugh, that's a real problem. Agreed. Yeah. But I do it anyway, because it's not for them. It's for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very Norm McDonald approach to comedy. It's, if he likes the joke and the audience doesn't laugh, they're wrong and he'll just wait. He did before he died. Now he's waiting for a very long time. Okay. So that hand, that, that kind of gets us through the clean. Let's ch chat about the snatch version of that. And the snatch again is taking the kettlebell from basically the ground or swing to all the way overhead. Yes. And so... What happens there is, and, and we, we went on a 20 plus year journey with this, where in the original RKC book, Pavel describes the snatch as a clean that ends up overhead. Okay. Somewhere along the way, people started talking about the snatch being a swing that ends up overhead. Okay. But when you do that, you arc the bell in a much wider arc away from yourself, and right. now it has to come over at the top. Whereas if I'm treating this as a clean that ends up overhead, I'm turning that bell over much differently and arriving at top at the same time. And so when you tweet, treat the the swing as a, the snatch as a swing that ends up overhead, you the potential for getting hit at the top of the snatch is much, much greater. That's interesting because I imagine people's natural inclination, if you're going to say, hey, go from that swing to getting overhead, would just be to swing harder to get mm -hmm. your hand up there. And you're setting yourself up for that bell coming around your hand and just smashing into your forearm. There's nothing else it could do, practically. Paint the fence. So another Cobra Kai or Karate Kid reference. If we think of the snatch being this paint the fence sort of motion, then you can see how the bell's going to just float and very gently turn over at the top. And then on the way down, I'm just, I'm painting the fence on, on the way down. And that's really tight arc where I'm working in this motion really helps with how we're performing the snatch. That's really cool. Okay. So we've talked about the four things that most people think about when it comes to kettlebell training. So we've got the get up, we've got a swing, we've got a clean, we've got a snatch. What is there beyond that most people are not aware of that has real value? Oh, boy. The military press right away. I think in the pre-bench press days, how much you could military press was the judge of, of uh, overall strength. And so I think performing the kettlebell military press is a really tremendous move, something that people should be doing. The goblet squat and the kettlebell front squat, whether you're doing it with one bell or two bells, really nice vertical and you know, when we contrast this with a barbell front squat, where you really have to create either the Olympic rack position, which I am not physically capable yeah, of I doing. I can't do it very well. Because if I actually put my hand in the rack position, the barbell is halfway through my face, or 
I've tweaked my wrist to the point where it actually damages my wrist to a certain extent and inhibits my grip strength, which I would never want to do. So wait, so you're saying after all this kettlebell training that's supposed to make you rock hard, you just can't tolerate throwing a barbell to your face? Correct. Okay. Just checking. Especially through my face. Okay. I could probably hit it once, but not through my face. <laughs> you um, wouldn't remember. <laughs> and then it wouldn't matter. The traditional barbell front squat where we're either in the kind of bodybuilder rack, the zombie rack, or the traditional Olympic rack position, there's how you have to handle that load is changed by the implement, the right. barbell. Whereas with the kettlebell, that kettlebell is going to sit over on my forearm in this little triangle in between the bicep and the, and the, the forearm, and it centers with my body. And the rack position compresses my rib cage so that I'm actually strengthening my breathing musculature and my diaphragm in a very different way than I would if I was using a barbell. And so I think the kettlebell front squat is one that we can definitely move towards. And then if we peek behind the curtain of some moves that are still possible, the push press, the jerk, the bent press, the windmill, there are some other exercises in the lexicon that really have some tremendous benefit to them. And again, okay. we, yep. And speaking of someone who understands weightlifting terminology, I got all of those, but the windmill. So the push press here, just for, again, for people who don't push press, like a military press, but what you're doing is getting your legs involved. So you've got the, and whether it's a kettlebell or anything. So you've got that at your shoulder, you take a very shallow squat. And as you're pushing up from that's when you're also getting your hand overhead, the, wait, what'd you have after that? Your Jerk. Push press, what'd you have? Jerk. Oh, jerk. Similar idea, except that you're really accentuating the leg part. And it, rather than just worrying about getting the, whatever the weight is over your head, you're dropping further, you're, you're squatting more. So it's like a, it's as much as the weight is going up, you're going down to catch both at the same time. What do we have after that one? The bent press. Bent press. What? I don't even know that. Bent press is an old school lift where we open up into this back rack position and then it's actually not a press. It is me pushing myself underneath the weight. And so there, there is an old continuum, especially, in, and we'll focus more towards the barbell for just a second, where if we were talking about the barbell military press and you progress to a point in load where you could no longer press it, you would almost naturally begin to dip and drive and use some leg assistance to get that overhead and the push press is born. Right. You continue to push press until the weight's so heavy that the momentum from the first push requires you to then drop underneath of it to fully lock out the arms and stand up. And so there's this continuum from the military press to the jerk that kind of happens very naturally as we go up and load. No, you know what this really is? This is guys who aren't willing to, these are, this is bro gym stuff from a hundred years ago where guys aren't willing to admit that they can't really lift that weight. So they find ways of faking it so they can go, see, look what I did. And so you, you just faked it. You didn't move that weight at all. You basically just dropped faster than the weight could drop until your arm was straight up and then you stood up, but that's not the same as lifting something. And, and then arguments flare. I 100%. And uh, the, the difference between something that is more of a grind, pure strength lift versus that ballistic lift where you're using momentum and, and actually trying to take advantage of your speed. It's a nice continuum there. And with the dumbbell or the kettlebell, we talk about the single kettlebell military press. Once it's heavy enough, 
we're going to open up a little bit and push it away where the body and the bell are moving at the same time, side press. Then the bell gets so heavy that I have to create this support position and drive myself underneath the weight. Pardon me. Once I establish the rack position, my job is to statically drive myself away from that weight. So I end up underneath it in the bent press position. And you can look up Arthur Saxon, Eugene Sandow, Earl Lederman, yeah, and some others. Uh, yeah, it's like the classic, one of the classic bodybuilding pictures from the early 1900s. The Olympia trophy with the, right. that's Eugene Sandow performing side press. Clever. Okay. And windmill. So the windmill is back to one of our loaded yoga moves where I've got my feet underneath my hips. I turn my feet 45 degrees away from my working side. So if I'm going to have my right arm overhead, I'm going to have my feet angled to the left 45 degrees. Okay. Then I'm going to push back into at a 45 degree angle, that right hip. Because once you shift the feet and get into this position, the hip is going to be slightly offset. So then my job is to push it back at a 45 degree angle to get it vertical. And right. then I continue to hinge into that position performing windmill. Interesting. Weird. So we get a good piriformis and hip stretch. Too many people will get into the windmill and shoot for a hamstring stretch. And that's really not what we're shooting for. When we do the windmill, we're trying to get into that, into the, into those rot hip rotators and, and piriformis. And one of the things that I'm a little bit passionate about as far as foot positioning for things like swings and deadlifts and squats is using the amount of foot out term that you need. In those symmetrical stance positions, single leg stance goes by its own rules. In those symmetrical stance positions, and I'll use myself as an example because it's all I've got. I have a 62 degree alpha angle cam style FAI and anterior labrum is completely torn anterior superior labrum. And let me just say for people who don't know what that is, you will continue yeah. to not know what that is because we're not going <laughs> to dive into that diagnostic. I, I have square pegs and round holes. Easy, <laughs> easiest way to think about it. If I do not go with a hip out turn, I cheat myself of a lot of hip range of motion. And if your hip stops, your back starts. Stops. Yeah. That's a bad trade-off. And so creating the foot position that you need to move effectively means I do my swings, my satches, everything squats with my feet turned out. Well, the hip rotator is going to get a little tight, a little short in that position. The windmill is how I stretch those and maintain some balance in my hip and uh, keep things opened up. And to think about how some kettlebell biomechanics apply to other things, what you just said for anyone who goes to a gym and uses any sort of leg press machine, whether it's a hack squat or a leg press or any of those, similar idea. If you don't turn your feet out a little bit, you're going to be limiting the range of motion you have, not getting the full impact on your legs and your hips. And it's all going to either not be effective enough because you're not getting out of stretch, or it's going to then start going to your back in ways that are not, let's say, non-ideal at the very least. But you mentioned something a moment ago in passing, and it was not a Karate Kid reference, thank God, but it was single leg. And yeah. what got me to getting my first kettlebell was as a sprinter, I was doing a bunch of stuff and I got really into doing single leg, not stiff leg, it's a misnomer, stiff leg deadlifts. It's basically slightly knee bent, but doing single leg deadlifts. And I spit and paste and swizzle sticks made a, a, a an approximation of a kettlebell with a bunch of weights and a bunch of what sort of electrical 
piping. And then a friend of mine who was actually at the time selling kettlebells was so offended by my little contraption that he gave me an 88 pound kettlebell. And so that was, that's something that, again, most people hadn't even thought of as being a kind of kettlebell exercise. So there's these other exercises that are non-ballistic that are other things that are that kind of round out the pantheon of kettlebell exercises. So single leg deadlift being one, what else do we have in that domain? It's almost anything you can do with a dumbbell, you can do with a kettlebell. If you want to do some one-arm rows, you want to use it for deadlift, single leg deadlift, suitcase deadlift, you want to use it for a goblet squat, all of those things. So basically think a bridge floor press or a floor press sort of situation. So working on the pecs and the chest, if you're into that sort of thing. I don't know why anybody would want to do that. <laughs> so yeah, a picture, pretty much anything you could use a dumbbell for, you could use a kettlebell for. But the kettlebell is easily passed from hand to hand, and that offset center mass continues to have a, a lot of benefits where a single leg deadlift with a dumbbell may take you beyond the range that you can control, and mm. really you shouldn't be going that deep. The kettlebell, because it sits off the ground, especially if you're using an appreciable weight, say 24 kilo and above, you're going to be far enough off the ground to where your range of motion is almost naturally limited to a more ideal range. One of the things about both kettlebells and dumbbells that becomes an obstacle for some people is getting a range of weights. Now, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> sorry, I'm having a flashback. Some super skinny to the point of anorexic distance runners that I used to be on the track with at the same time, their coach had them doing some kettlebell work after they were done running. And these are guys who, you know, these are world champion distance runners who couldn't do a push up, and they were using a two pound kettlebell for doing swings. It was just humiliating to watch, which makes no sense because I'm not humiliated. I was just watching, just shaking my head. But nonetheless, getting a range of bells or a range of dumbbells can be off putting for some people. Have you played with any of the adjustable weight kettlebells? I haven't. And I'm, I'm going to make a pitch right now for if we go back to the traditional set of kettlebells. Uh, would have been a 16, 24, and 32 kilo. In in Russian measurements, it was poods. So you had one pood, one and a half pood, two pood. So 16, 24, 32 kilo. And an eight kilo wait, jump. Wait, wait for the fun of it. Let's do the math on that for, for people who don't think in kilos because we're holdouts for not using kilos. So 16 is roughly 35 pounds-ish, 24. So we're talking 40, about 50 pounds, plus or minus. You know, 53. Minus. Yep. There we go. And what did you say the other one was? 32 kilo. So 70 and a half pounds. There we go. Okay. Yep. So the jumps there, the 16 plus pound jumps that you have between those loads, there's actually a benefit to that. Mm. And so when we tend to think nowadays in incremental loading fashion, right, we're going to go up a pound to two and a half pounds, five pounds, whatever it is, we're going to do these nice little small incremental jumps. And over time, if I just add a pound to my bench press a day, I'll be bench pressing 360 whatever pounds more because it's a leap year. So I, I can't remember how many days there are. <laughs> so the, we'll end up benching 300 pounds more. And of course, this is fiction. The benefit of having step loading forced upon you. Let's say you get this 16, 24, 32 kilo bell and you can press the 24 kilo right now, but you can't press the 32. So instead of going out and buying all the microweights, you're forced to stay with the 24 kilo bell, build skill, build tissue, 
build the neurology and patterning and volume that leads to being able to press the 32 kilo bell. And that progression where you're forced to stay at own, build volume at, and adapt to that load before you take on the heavier load has tremendous benefit. And when you look at periodization in general and you look at a six-week mesocycle, why is it six weeks long? We know that within two weeks, you get a tremendous bump in strength and, and progression because of the neurological adaptations. It takes another four weeks for your tissues to catch up. So stabilizing the results, quickly lost or sorry, quickly gained, quickly lost. So if you want to maintain a progression, you need to stay there for a little while and own it and build that volume and skill and progression. And so step loading and the kind of what appears to be this brutish forced march towards owning one weight before you take on another actually has a lot of benefit. That's very interesting. What was I going to say? I had another thought about that. Oh, so you were uh, shaking uh, eight pound kettlebells and these tiny little baby bells that are just silly. Please say more for those people who have those and are now feeling embarrassed or, ju well, or I, justified. Either one works for me. <laughs> I think that from a general fashion, people are stronger than they think they are. Now, Obviously, that goes wrong, and people end up in situations where they're not as strong as they thought they were, and they run into problems. But a lot of people will sell themselves short. And so early in the kettlebell days, when they only came in kilos, and nobody understood kilos because we don't <laughs> think like that, I would say to somebody, hey, go grab that eight and go ahead and do this movement. And it could have been a deadlift, a single leg deadlift, a row, whatever it was. And at the end of the set, I'd be like, how'd that feel? And they go, yeah, eight pounds. That felt fine. I'm like, no, that was almost 17 pounds. They're like, what? Wow. Yeah, you just moved 17 pounds really easily. Oh, I might be a little stronger than I think. Yeah, you're a lot stronger than you think. So now let's grab that 12, 26 pounds, and let's do something with that. And so and you could only get away with it for so many times before they no, started no, doing the math on their own. You're wrong because <laughs> I had a, when I was doing heavy lifting, which I'm not doing now because I've got spine issues, I mm -hmm. liked to lift in kilos because even though mm -hmm. I knew I could do the translation into pounds, I didn't. And there's something different about lifting 200 kilos versus 440 pounds, mm -hmm. and which I never did 200, I did 150. But nonetheless, it's a very different thing in your brain. Because I remember the first time when I was lifting pounds and I deadlifted 400, first of all, it was just a psychological barrier. So to get mm -hmm. psyched up for doing it, I was totally able to do it, but I was just so terrified about the number four at the beginning of what I was lifting that it took a little while to get you know ready to do that. Then it got worse because as soon as I deadlifted 400, I had two thoughts immediately thereafter. The first was, oh crap, now I got to go for 500. And luckily the second one was, hey, you're a moron. <laughs> so I never did that. So let's see. So my gosh. So we talk about the lifts independently. Let's talk about just workout structure, if you will, and how doing using a kettlebell for that is a different game than what many people are thinking about or used to if they're thinking about getting in shape, getting strong, et cetera, et cetera. We'll create two different categories. We'll talk about grinds, which would match up more with traditional strength training progressions and training plans. And we'll talk about ballistics which really start to play by their own rules. If I'm structuring something like a uh, military press program with the kettlebell, 
you'll see some fairly traditional programming show up in there. Maybe I'm working on a five by five approach, maybe, or maybe I'm working on ladders and performing one, two, three, four reps. So we have rungs, one, one rep, two rep, three rep, four rep with rest in between. It's not a continuous thing. And then I'm progressing to the point where I can do five ladders to five which is actually about 150 presses if you're doing both arms. And so it's a lot of work to build up towards five set, five ladders of five within squats, presses, bridge four press, things that we talked about. You'll see some more traditional programming kick in there, uh, although we might take a bit of a higher volume approach. With ballistics, which we would consider swings, cleans, snatches, jerks, things of that nature, the loading is so quick and so brief. Because we are really doing, I, I think Verkashansky would call it a power metric move, not a plyometric move. But we're pretty far on the power side of things when we're doing swings, clean snatches, jerks. So now the volume that I can accrue because the amount of time I'm loaded is so short, I can really start to pump the volume a little bit. And if you look at something like Pavel Simple and Sinister, he recommends basically a daily training volume of about 100 swings. Well, most people never think in terms of doing a hundred bicep curls and nor should they, but with swings, I can, I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, and there is a classic restaurant there in Roanoke called the Texas Tavern, which is this old steel counter thing that at two in the morning is the place to be downtown. And there's 10 little stools and you have the, every walk of life represented. And there's a line out the door and there's a sign behind the counter that says we can serve a thousand people. 10 at a time. So I can get a hundred reps out of you five at a time. And so we break it down into these high power, high quality chunks, but the vo total volume that we can achieve is, is pretty significant. That's interesting. I like the idea. I'm a big fan of doing little things often just because I'm fundamentally lazy. <laughs> so like to do I'm with you, know, you. Yeah, there are people who like to go to the gym for two hours. I'm not that guy. I, I, it's just not my thing. But like the other day, happily, my home gym is right next to where we have our television. So I did a little something before TV watching, did a little something after TV watching. Now, granted, the things I'm doing are not easy. So I'll do Nordic hamstring curls until I fall over or, and which is now is getting to be more and more because I can go all the way down all the way back. So it takes a while till I fall over, but I'll just do that and then go watch TV. And then when I'm done, I'll, because I'm vain back to your point about uh, working chest, I will uh, actually, you know what it is just for the fun of saying it and being a little transparent, whatever the hell that means. I've been doing more things to build more muscle because I'm 61 and <laughs> having more is better. And so I'm working on all of those body parts that otherwise I don't really care about other than it would be nice to take off my shirt and have my wife go, ooh, or even better to have other women who are 30 years younger do the same thing. I have to confess that would be fun, but I'll do some significant chest related something. And lately my favorite exercise is the reverse grip dumbbell bench press. Mm -hmm. So it, it works really well in a whole lot of ways that are entertaining. I could do it with bells too, actually, now that I think of it. But anyway, so yeah, I'm a big fan of those little things more often. And it's one of those things that's interesting. Many people just don't think about breaking it up. They don't think that you have to go to the gym for this amount of time. You have to do the workout for this amount of time rather than just making it such a integral part of your day where the problem is it just doesn't feel like you're doing as much. 
Mm-hmm. And so you, so there's a weird psychological component to if you don't walk out of there just sweaty and pumped and tired and exhausted and thinking people are staring at you when they're not. So um, like with that, back to the my, my single leg, stiff like a deadlift, uh, I got to bring that bell. We've moved offices, so I don't have it here. But I used to have it right next to my desk and just mm-hmm. four or five times a day, I'd do a set of 10. And it was, yeah, I got to bring that thing in here. And of course, then if I do that, I won't have it at home. I got to buy another one. Okay, there we go. So there you go. All right. Uh, My my bells have expanded in number over the years. So there's several of them upstairs. Oh, if someone's looking to just get started with kettlebell things, and obviously this leads to talking about you and what you're doing, or it can, but before we get to how they can connect to you, if somebody's looking to get started, whether they're looking to just integrate this into what they're currently doing as something that can be helpful for whatever sport they're participating in, or if they want to think of it as just a workout thing, the same way you would go to the gym and do whatever else, how would you recommend people think about that, let alone do that? So there's a couple of different things. Pavel's Simple and Sinister program is a great starting point for pretty much anybody. The get-ups involve the swing, deadlift, the swing. You're going to go through the goblet squat, the hip bridge, and the halo. And there's a lot of benefit to just getting started there. Now, I'm always a fan of getting an individualized uh, approach. If I can learn something well in, in the immediate term, I can do better with that thing over the long term. So rather than suffer on my own for six months or a year trying to figure something out, why not just get a coaching session? And even if you just want to get coached on the get the swing and the get up, one or two sessions there can save you months of frustration trying to figure it out on your own. So that th- those would be my two biggest recommendations. We have uh, workshops that we do that are four and a half hour kind of bite sized things that take you through different aspects of the of kettlebell training. But somewhere in that mix of simple and sinister book or online course, an individualized session. And a workshop where you still get some individual some individual tips, great ways for folks to get started. Awesome. And so if they are going to do this, we, this is a perfect segue for if people want to get in touch with what you're doing, describe what you've been doing since you've been doing this now for over 21 years. Holy crap, isn't that crazy? Talk about how they can get in touch with you and how they can learn things with and from you. Absolutely. So I do articles and things through strongfirst.com. I have my Instagram feed at Brett Jones SFG, that where I post videos and, and do things. My website is appliedstrength.com. I have now three different products on strongandfit.com, where I have the Iron Cardio video, Iron Cardio book, and my new program that just came out is Mind the Gap, uh, which is all about filling in those mobility, stability, and strength gaps. When you follow a minimalist routine and you don't want to be in the gym for hours at a time, you have to accept the fact that there's that minimalist routine will leave potentially some gaps. So how do you fill those gaps in a time efficient fashion? And how do you do your training so that you feel good? I, I think people's unspoken desire in fitness is to feel good. Yeah. They very rarely come in and say that. Typically it's, I want to lose weight. I want to do this. I want to do that. But in the background is, I just want to feel good. Yeah. And so that's the direction there. Beautiful. I should have asked this before I said, how can everyone get in touch with you? Is there anything we left out? Uh, we could go on forever, probably, but anything. Oh my like- gosh. Yeah. We can have a bunch of different conversations, but I, I think that the overall thing is I'm 21 plus years into using this thing called a kettlebell. 
and I learn something every time I pick it up. Mm. I think you've been running for how many years? One, two, three. Actually, a couple, no, couple five years. Yeah, I've been doing it for a little while. And you know yeah. what? But it's a good point. I literally, I was at an event. Oh, when was this? Let's call it November. And I bumped into a guy who gave me a cue that after all the years that I've been sprinting, changed my sprinting form in a positive way. It's like, oh, that answers something that I've been trying to do that I couldn't figure out on my own. It was brilliant. Yep. And so approaching this as not something that you're going to master in six weeks, but knowing that I'm 21 plus years into swinging a bell and I learn something every time I pick up a bell, every time I clean it, every time I press it is yeah. an opportunity to learn. Boy, wouldn't we approach our fitness in a different way rather than to just work out. And that's why at Strong First, we very strongly lean in the direction of, we don't refer to our training sessions as workouts. They're practices. Mm. We are practicing the skill. Now, Dr. Ed Thomas, who was a, a mentor of mine and, and somebody that I learned a lot from, always said, I never went to the gym to work out. I went to the gym to learn. Mm. Now, in the process of learning, did I get tired? Did I get sweaty? Did I get, quote, fit? Yes, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was to learn the next progression, to do the previous progression better, to enhance my skill, to learn. And you've been doing it for a lifetime of running and sprinting. There are Olympic lifters, power lifters. There are musicians who have been practicing the same uh, piece. Uh, there's a famous cellist who at 92 was asked why he was still practicing. And his response was, because I think I'm starting to make some progress. <laughs> it's, it, it's the way Ruth Gordon had that line when she won an Academy Award. I wish I could. Anyway. Yeah. No, that it's a brilliant approach. Sorry. Keep going. No, I just, I, I would love for everyone to approach their training as an opportunity to learn and to, that would, I think, really change people's relationship with, with fitness. And I'm hoping one day to do a perfect swing, but we'll see if that ever happens. <laughs> Good luck on that one. It's, this is, I think of it like Japanese art forms, like calligraphy or tea ceremony or any of these. The idea is to get it perfectly right, knowing that's impossible. And that little paradoxical thing is what makes it interesting. And there's always something there. Oh, Ruth Gordon said, she remember Ruth Gordon's line. She was like, I don't know, she was 80 years old when she won the Academy Award. <laughs> Her line was, I can't tell you how encouraging this is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Good. Brett, as always, and I say as always, because we've now had this conversation, not this conversation, but we've had two big chats. An absolute pleasure. I'm really thrilled that we have to share this with everyone. I do hope for anyone listening slash watching that you take advantage of just exploring this and seeing if kettlebells are something you want to play with and integrate into what you're doing. I highly recommend it. There are, as we we're alluding to, lots of applications for these where you're just replacing something you're already doing with something maybe a little more interesting for you physically, let alone something that looks more interesting in your basement where people are going to walk by and have some opinion. That could be an interesting conversation too. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And for everyone else, just a reminder, check out everything Brett said and all the places that he was pointing you to. And on my end, head over to www.jointhemovementmovement.com for previous episodes, places to engage with us on social media, places to find the podcast if you're not happy with where you already found it. 
And if you want to drop me an email because you have a recommendation or a suggestion or a compliment or a complaint or someone who you think should be on the podcast, I'm still trying to get someone who thinks I have a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome who's willing to spar with me about that. That'd be fun. You can drop me an email. It's at, You can email me at move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. And until then, as always, just go out, have fun, and live life feet first. <laughs>